0: Hello and welcome to 10x9, 9, where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran, and this is the 10x9 Podcast. <music> Portugal and I started 10 by 9 in September 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast, and we love it. In honour of Mother's Day in North America, there's kind of a mothering theme to this week's podcast.
1: Turns out he has near a hundred ornate outfits and has to be dressed several times a day. Child of Prague wouldn't have a look-in.
2: And worst of all, I was pretending to everyone that I just adored this beautiful child. And yes, of course, parenthood was the best thing to ever happen to me.
3: Priests refused our actual name as not a saint. So you were Mary Margaret and am Mary something else.
0: Okay, let's get on with the first of our stories. It comes from Fiona Malloy and she told it in the black box in March when the thing was reality. Take it away, Fiona.
1: When I was young, they used to call me Why Malloy? And there were both advantages and disadvantages to that. I can know what to say about the curious child being smart and all that. And I have one like that of my own at home at present. But on the other hand, curiosity also killed the cat. On the topic of reality and the meaning of life, if there is one, well, my curiosity has never been quelled, nor has my search really ever stopped. I mean, what an under God is it all about? Or is it an under God at all? Or are we just permeated with him, her, it as the eternal consciousness which encompasses all things? The God delusion versus the science delusion, and it would appear that we're all delusional in some form or another. i have done my own bit of research on the nature of reality, both within and without the scientific realm. Whilst you might find a copy of The New Scientist for perusal in my toilet, you could just as easily find a copy of Mind, Body, Spirit, and you could lift whichever tickled your fancy to help things along for you whilst you're there. I've also done many hours of research on the spiritual traditions of the world and I've spent hundreds of hours bending my own wee head listening to both Ram Dass, the psychedelic pioneer turned guru, and Alan Watts, the self-named spiritual entertainer, on the podcasts. Some of my spiritual research at the end of last year turned out to be more by accident than by design. After the whole lockdown scenario, I was gagging to get away on a retreat of some kind for a bit of self-reflection and for some communing with randoms, of course, (laughs) as you do. The cheapest retreat that I could find was in Fermanagh, and it promised meditation and mindful walks and so on. Turned out, completely unbeknownst to me, it was a Hare Krishna retreat (laughs) centre, which I was not expecting at all. But sure, I threw myself into the spirit of the thing, anyhow, pardon the pun. The food was good, well, it was good on the way in, if you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) All vegan, of course, as they have the ultimate respect for living creatures. My guts just weren't used to such goodness and were struggling to adjust, but that's a whole other story entirely. The scenery was beautiful, even the getting up at 5.30 a.m. in the freezing cold and pitch black to go on a very precarious chugging barge across a stretch of water to a temple on a small island to worship Krishna, that was a bit of a struggle. The ritual of it all was very interesting indeed, with bells, horns, chanting and bowing, worshipping full prostrate on the ground at times, it really was a feast for the eyes and ears. Krishna himself was dressed up in a golden altar and when we went back up the next day he was dressed differently. Turns out he has near a hundred ornate outfits and has to be dressed several times a day. Child of Prague wouldn't have a look in. <laughs> the wee man that ran the retreat centre was not what I was expecting at all either. Not that I knew what to expect since I didn't even know where I was going. John, not his real name, small, softly spoken, and with a wee pot belly that made you want to cuddle him, started off as he meant to go on, telling me about the whole Australian authorities out chasing two young fellows who'd escaped from a COVID detention centre. John didn't believe in the whole COVID debacle, and figured it was a worldwide deep state plot to control us all, and he wasn't having any part of it. I didn't mind that at all, to be honest, as I was pretty much used to our regular series of inputs along similar lines on the reality of all that in my own house. John didn't really mix outside of the area and found the stresses and strains of the matrix out here a bit too much for him. I have to say I was sympathetic, as I often wondered myself, if given the choice, whether I'd go for the red pill or the blue pill. One of the perks of the retreat, for a few extra spondulics, were the treatments, if you were so inclined, e.g. Reiki, massage, reflexology, and I was inclined, I have to say. I reckoned I deserved it, after all I'd been through. The homeschooling, the isolation, the claustrophobia, the homeworking, and then there was the homeschooling. I must confess, I did laugh at these idiots that decided after lockdown that homeschooling was the way forward. I had seen many memes on Facebook and the like at that time on things I'd rather do than homeschool that made me laugh out loud. But because I'm menopausal, I couldn't remember any of them for this story. (laughs) So as you do, I stuck it into the net just to see. Somebody had went to the bother of putting together a list of 10 things I'd rather do than homeschool, which includes, gather up and try to match odd socks in a house of three kids and four adults, and fish a rogue eyelash out of my eye or somebody else's eye. I personally feel that these are rather tame compared to what I'd rather do than homeschool, but I digress. To get back to the treatments, I went for the massage and reflexology. John had married for the second time a small oriental woman, and she was shit hot at the massage, so no problems there. Maybe it's my fault for being greedy or thinking I deserve too much, but the reflexology was a bit of a disaster. The woman had clearly never had a reflexology lesson in her puff. She just spent about 45 minutes rubbing my feet up and down like the side of an owl calf or something. <laughs> she fixated on something on the front of my foot and rubbed it until I had a bruise. The whole thing was most unpleasant. On the Saturday, a walk in the beautiful gardens of a nearby National Trust property was on the program and it was to be a mindful walk. I chose to go in John's car as all the others wanted to wear masks and he was clearly disdainful of this. (laughs) They could all go off and be their conditioned and indoctrinated selves while we sat like complete revels, unmuffled and untethered. I also got to know a bit about the others on the walk and there was one guy, a doctor, hope to God he's not here, who also hadn't realised it was a Hare Krishna retreat and said, he wouldn't have come had he known. I had noticed that he was reluctant with the chanting earlier on in the retreat and he hadn't wanted to give his devotion to Krishna too handily. No call for it like. He also got on my goat with his whole analysis on the nature of reality itself, because of course that's the type of convo that you have on a walk with someone you've never met before when he said he didn't believe in anything spiritual whatsoever and that everything would be explained by science one day, the neck and arrogance of it. One other wonderful thing about this retreat was the island where the temple was. It had both wild deer and peacock in it. I never had got so close to a peacock, and there were many just dandering about, not a care in the world. Anyhow, to get back to the theme and the point of it all, the whole place was so peaceful and so outside of my usual reality that I actually found it quite strange when I come home and go back to my own reality. For days, I couldn't get the ambience and just the feeling of being there out of my head and I kept harking back to the peace of it all. We had always had conversations way back in our party days about getting off grid, starting a commune and living off the land. This experience gave me the taste of what this reality might be like and to tell you the truth, I think I could nearly handle it. I could cope, so long as there was plenty of Wi-Fi.
3: Thanks very much, Fiona. Um, sometime we'll get Paul to tell this story about a time I took him to a retreat centre, and I think you and he could have a good conversation. Paul does still suffer from post-retreat centre traumatic syndrome. Um,
0: Thanks so much, Fiona. You always give us a laugh. And it is true, I just refuse to go along to anything resembling a retreat unless there's a very clear escape route. Remember if you have a story for 10x9 or you want to know more about what we do check out our website 10x9.com. There's plenty of info there including all our dates for this year and a few other bits and pieces. We are always looking for stories so if you find a theme that works for you get in touch. We're back in the black box later in May with the theme break. If you're listening to this after that. Sorry you missed it, but if you've a story, let me know. Now, Nuri is a small city about 30 miles south of Belfast and I took 10 by 9 there on an evening in March when the theme was woman. Here is the wonderful Bruna McAtasney.
2: It's no secret that being a parent is hard work. Just when you think that every age is going to be easier than the last, you long to go back only to find out that it isn't. And then people with 30-year-old children tell you that they still worry and don't sleep at night. And then you're the one telling young parents to take in every moment because their cute youngster will soon be a smelly, grumpy, monosyllabic, enormous monster in their house. I speak from experience. (laughs) Not me, obviously my son. (laughs) Um, People pass, comment and joke about how sleeping is the new going out. We all roll our eyes supportively when a mum says her child has eaten nothing but spaghetti hoops for a year and reassure her it will pass and they will not starve. But admitting that it's harder than you ever thought possible and that it's not fun is more difficult. Until you open your heart to expose those thoughts only to find out that everyone else feels the same way. It's ridiculous that as the mother of a baby, I looked around me and saw only people doing things much better than me. That is, people actually coping with life rather than just trying to get the next task done without falling apart. I didn't think I'd be a mum at all. When I was a lot younger, I had this fantasy of a huge family. I didn't really know what that meant and the amount of work that that meant. I think I just watched too much Brady Bunch and the Osmond family and I thought, that looks like fun, let's do that. During my 20s then, I completely flipped and I decided that it wasn't for me at all. I didn't want to be tied down. I was having far too much fun. And then as women's problems, watch all the men shirk, women's problems (laughs) started to rear their head, it seemed the choice was being taken away from me anyway, and that was fine too. Then in my 30s, someone convinced me that we should have a child and it would be brilliant and we'd be great parents and we could do this. And if science could help him and help us and it made him happy, then why not? Admittedly it wasn't the best reasoning, but it was a persuasive argument at the time. God of Almighty, it was hard work. That's a really bland statement that says nothing. It was more than hard work. It was complete madness. Pregnancy was hard, okay. It was all right. It was uncomfortable. I got bigger and hotter and gassier and crampier and crabbier. The birth was okay. It was a C-section. I don't know what happened there. That just went that way. And apparently I nearly died, but you know. And then we put this tiny baby in a car seat that looked like it was going to swallow him whole and somehow got him home. Closed the door and wallop. The whole world went completely mad. I was so tired that I found myself speaking out loud when I thought I was just thinking. I hallucinated. I was so sure I had done things when I hadn't actually moved for an hour. I couldn't find the energy to get dressed. Feeds and changing every two hours for months what the hell was this? I was too tired to cry and honestly I think I just disappeared. You would look at me and you'd see a slightly dishevelled woman carrying her child around apparently doing worthwhile things but that wasn't me. It was just an empty shell, a hollow husk and worst of all I was pretending to everyone that I just adored this beautiful child and yes of course parenthood was the best thing to ever happen to me. Everyone else seemed to be getting on with it just fine. Other mothers were out, driving around, going shopping, taking their newborns, visiting, getting their hair cut. So when they phoned me up, that's what I was doing too. And I was all bouncy and happy and full of the joys of motherhood. And then I would hang up the phone and I would disappear again. I looked at the child and honestly, I felt nothing. I couldn't connect to it in any way. It was just a thing I had to take care of. And suddenly, my entire previously full life now revolved around this and I couldn't stand feeling that way I wanted to feel what everyone else was feeling I longed to look at the baby and let those waves of love wash over me didn't everyone go on and on about the magnificent realization that now nothing else matters and this little being was the new center of my world this little being was the center of my world because my world had shrunk to be nothing but this little being And it didn't want me to sit and stare at it adoringly. It wanted fed and it wanted its nappy changed and winded and its nappy changed again. And it wanted to pee on me and poop so much that I had to change the nappy, the sheets, its clothes, my clothes. (laughs) I didn't hate it, but I certainly didn't think I loved it. And I felt incredibly selfish and guilty and I knew I was failing at the one thing that everyone said was the most natural thing in the world. But nobody else felt that way. I knew that because they all spoke like the epitome of a parenting magazine. They had schedules and play dates and they wanted to do fun things that would stimulate baby. I was living in America by this stage at this time, in case you're wondering, you know, who are these people who wanted to stimulate their baby? <laughs> I wanted to run away and I knew that this child would actually be better off without me. But slowly it did change. Nights got easier. Well, I got sleep. Baby started to respond and smile. He recognised me and he let me know it. And one day, I reached out a ball to him and he grabbed it and something happened and I got it. And the wave of relief that I realised I could and did love this child washed over me. He grabbed a ball and I sat on the floor and cried. Months later, in fact over a year later, I started to talk about this and lo and behold, everyone agreed. It was horrible. It was hard. It was painful. We were all guilt-ridden. Those of us who went back to work and struggled and those of us that stayed at home thinking we were doing a rubbish job. Every one of us admitted that the myth had fooled us and that falling for it had damaged, if not maybe even destroyed, our memories of that time. The good thing was that it had passed and we had so much time to make up now for how we felt. So now I look at my gigantic, black-clad teenager wandering around the house with an innate skill to navigate around things, including the pile of smelly clothes in his room, while staring at his phone. I could practically see the worn path from his bedroom to the fridge. And I don't think I could love anything more. And yes, I still feel guilty for how I felt in those first months, but as they say, it's okay to not be okay. You're not alone. Just don't fall for the good mother myth.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Bruna, thanks so much, and what a wonderfully honest story. Now, we've had a few new patrons on Patreon. Thanks so much to Eric Dubois and Elizabeth Super, and to all our patrons. We really are extremely grateful. If you'd like to join them, check out the links on our website, 10 But always remember, the best way to support us is to keep listening. If you can stretch to a review or a rating, then that is more than enough. Thank you. On to our third story now, and get ready for something a little different. The story was told at a special event in Antrim, a town north of Belfast. It was March, and the theme was Women Leading. I couldn't be there, as I had COVID, but a local writer, Maureen Boyle, saw the theme and said she had a prose poem about her grandmother that would fit. She submitted, and I loved it. Some information beforehand, the village she refers to is Cyan Mills, a gorgeous place with a fantastic history in County Tyrone. And although the quality of the recording isn't as pristine as we'd like, it's hopefully more than good enough. Here's Maureen.
3: Five things have come to me from you. Your piano, your wedding ring, your love of broad beans in summer, your prayer book and your name. Both of us, I find, on looking at your wedding cert online, saddled with a double M, because the priests refused our actual name as not a saints, so you were Mary Margaret, and I a Mary something else instead. You died in your sleep when I was ten, of the same disease that took your mother when you were nine, leaving you and four wee brothers the start of service would subsume your life. You came to the village a bride at 17, remembered as sitting on the windowsill of the small street house, swinging your legs, newly arrived from the convent in Limavady, singing. Your father, the widower, worried that you were marrying too young, asked the advice of another woman who reasoned that If he was a good man who would let you make your own home, then it was the right thing to do. He was a good man. It was to be a house full of music despite its size, where engineers would stay from Belgium and Belfast, and you would play and sing on piano and accordion by ear. A happy house where everyone would caleigh there. Number 14 Main Street. From where each day my grandad trooped down the mill lane with men and women in answer to the hooter's call, the little house the prize. You nursed the ones who reared him till they died. And in your first pregnancy, at a cricket match in the home field, corseted even then, in a formal photo posed in maybe 44, my mother grave and pretty would be seven, you only 28, holding your last child, your heir matronly, in what I learned to be a victory roll. And in the spring of 58, the chestnut trees already coming into bloom, on April 5th that little boy would die of spontaneous cerebellum haemorrhage from coming off his bike along a bray. The words conveyed to you from the only phone at the bottom of the street. But at the end of that year, my parents marry and the house is lit again, a Christmas wedding after all the sadness. Famously, you put me in a drawer during the big wind and I have a picture of you teaching me to walk by the same windowsill you sat on as a girl. We reached back to the famine through your memories your father, born in 89, his father who could only make his mark, lived through it and you would tell me stories of it that I now forget. Your people from the townland of near near de Derg. You would take me to the Derg as a little child on our own adventures on an Osterbus. We would go to the house of old people at a ticking clock. Your Aunt Jane and her brother, your father, who sat silent and scared me with their musty, frowsy immobility. One day a bull was loose on market day and you and I had to run. We came to you for lunch from the village school. Irish stew delicious by the window or sweet brown trout the roe fried caught in the river. You'd hang out clothes on the big shared lines at the backs on the cinder paths, chatting to the other woman while children played among the sheets. After school, we'd sit by the fire on brass boxes while Granda watched the races. The heat and commentary so horrific. You kept your knitting needles in a whisky cylinder and made us Aran dresses with coloured crisps to wear to school.
2: Mostly, it is laughter,
3: I remember, and warmth. In another photo, all six of us clamour over you, like a mountain we climbed and clung to, always with surprises in your bag, hands instantly capable with anything a child might need. But twice, strangely, given how long ago it is, I still feel the sting of a rare rebuke. You loved Bonanza, and we would watch it with you when you babysat. One night, the reason now forgotten, I made a joke about Hoss that you took to be cruel and told me it was never good to make someone small. And on another night, perhaps a year before you died, I came out of my bedroom excited, wanting your approval for my first letter to an American pen pal. But you cut off the recital when I started describing my bedroom. This was not the proper way, you said, to write a letter. You are dead now, almost as long as you lived, and I am older than you were then when we thought of you as old. And so your piano sits in our library, needing to be tuned. I wear your ring of old gold and grow my own broad beans. I've lost the veritable panoply of scenes you held in your head and I carry your name while my cousin wears your face and shocks me with recognition when she comes to the door.
0: <clears throat> Maureen, thanks so much for that. What a beautiful tribute to your grandmother and namesake. And Maureen's grandmother was born in 1916 and died in 1972. What a loss, but what enduring memories. And that is it for this podcast. We really do love to hear from you. It really makes my day. So get in touch on social media. That is Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also email at story at 10 by com or via our website, which is 10 by 9com Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes. And please, if you can tell as many people as you can about the podcast, It's the best way to get us noticed. Thanks to the lovely audiences of Newry, Antrim and The Black Box, the staff at the venues we used and all of our storytellers, but especially Fiona Malloy, Bruna Magatazny and Maureen Boyle. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye.